0: We rejoin and conclude our series in the little book of Jude this morning. The little book of Jude, if you are maybe a first-time guest or haven't been here in a while, we've been working our way through this tiny little epistle. It is 25 verses in length, and if you have forgotten where it is in your Bible, no worries. No shame in using the table of contents, or just turn all the way over to Revelation, the book at the end, and then start heading left, and when you get to that first page after Revelation, that'll be the book of Jude. Usually one page, sometimes two, depending on how they uh, divide it in your Bible, but it is there, I promise, even though it's easy to overlook. And this morning we are going to consider verses 24 and 25, so if you'll turn in your copy of God's Word and just hold that there for a moment, Uh, I want to introduce the text briefly and then read it and uh, then preach it this morning. So last week we learned that fighting against those who invade the church isn't enough. We're supposed to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints because there are secret invaders that come in. And one of the ways that we contend is we build ourselves up in the Word. We pray in the Spirit. We wait for the return of Christ. These are all ways that we keep ourselves in the love of God even as we try to rescue those who are at risk of perishing But we can't stop there, because if we stop there, if we ended Jude's epistle in verse 23, we might conclude that our salvation ultimately depends on us, that it's up to us. But Jude doesn't want to end in that way. Instead, he's going to end in the way that he began, and he's going to tell us that that ultimately it's God who keeps us, that the God who rescues sinners is the God who forever keeps those that he rescues. So Jude begins with this idea that we're kept by Jesus and we're beloved by the Father, and he really ends in a similar fashion. One of the greatest joys that I have as a dad is helping my kids learn how to play sports. I love covering the fundamentals, but sometimes my children lack for confidence when they take the field or do whatever it is they're supposed to do, get in the batter's box. Samuel is is learning the game of golf. And he will get his feet shoulder width apart. He will get his toes slightly turned outward. His spine angle will be set. His grip strength will be perfect, not too firm, not too loose. His alignment, nearly perfect. And then, as he's holding the club, he'll look at me frozen and say, Daddy, is it right? Do I, do I have every perfect thing down? And, and at that moment, I will say to Samuel... Just relax and swing the club. Just swing the club. And Jude, for us, is kind of doing that at the end of this little epistle. He's he's told us all these things about intruders and invaders and how we remain in the love of God and all that we can do. And it's like at the end of verse 23, you might be thinking, wow, that is so much to remember. How will I ever do it? And then in verse 24 and 25, he's like, now remember, your confidence doesn't ultimately come from you. It's not that you've got this, it's that God has you. And if God has you, you can contend with confidence. Would you hear now the word of God? Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. God, we ask that the glory that you are due from our lives would be a glory that you would receive, and that our understanding of who you are would grow, and our appreciation for what you've done would grow today. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. With this concluding prayer of praise as sort of the punctuation mark on the book of Jude, it's a, it's a doxology. Jude is reminding us that it is God who saves his people and that that has massive consequences for how we contend and the confidence that we have to contend for the faith. Because it is God who saves us, we can contend with confidence knowing that those who are truly saved are kept forever by the God who has saved them. So we learn in this passage really two key, key truths. First, to contend for the faith with confidence, we must trust that God will preserve us and fulfill his promises to us. God preserves or keeps his children and he fulfills his promises. And then secondly, We must know who God is and praise Him for graciously, gloriously, powerfully, and decisively saving and keeping us. First, we must believe that God will preserve us and fulfill His promises to us. Jude's doxology begins with the one to whom the prayer is addressed. It's addressed to Him. Now, to Him, not not to us, right, but to Him. Now, the imposters were denying their only master and Lord by how they lived, but Jude reminds his congregation or this church that our lives are lived unto him, and the glory goes to him. Our confidence for contending doesn't ultimately come from us, but from God. So Jude tells us the who of our confidence. The who of our confidence is God. And then he tells us the why of our confidence. Why can we have this confidence in God? because He is able to keep us from stumbling and to make us stand in the presence of His glory, blameless with great joy. Did you catch that, church? The God who saves us is the same God who keeps us from stumbling. God is never not able to keep you. Yes, that was a double negative, and that's okay. He will surely keep us, Yes, human fathers sometimes abandon their children, or sometimes they don't have the resources they need in order to provide for their children, but the Heavenly Father never abandons His children. He never runs out of the resources necessary to meet the true needs of His children. I think about my son or my daughter, when they mess up, when they stumble, when they fail, when it seems like they're uh, straying, it doesn't change the fact that I am their father and that I love them. As Achan writes, we are under his fatherly care, which protects us from falling away. Now, in verse 24, this word stumbling in in, in this context does not mean that you will never sin again. It, It doesn't mean that you will be a sinless person. What it means is that you will not fall into apostasy. You will never fall into a posture of not believing in the God who saved you. God preserves those who are truly his. And those who are truly His will persevere to the end. Yes, Christians will struggle, they will battle, they will fight for faith. But they will not stumble and fall into unrepentant rebellion and disregard for Christ. When you do sin, by the way, church, one of the greatest evidences that you belong to Christ and that you have God for your Father is that God the Father disciplines you. Hebrews 12, 6 says it this way, those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. So this morning you say, I'm battling, I'm wrestling, I'm struggling, I'm I'm trapped in a pattern and I don't want to be and my life is miserable. Praise God that your life is miserable. If you can sin and your life not be miserable, that's a problem. If you can go on sinning and not have consequences in your life, that's a problem. If you can sin and worship yourself or worship Satan or worship what the world values and God never interrupts your life or convicts you of sin, then that's a problem. But if you fall into a pattern of sin and you're like, what in the world is wrong with me and you need to run back to God's people and repent of your sin, praise God for that. That's an evidence that God is your Father. Repent. Run to Christ. Live for Him if you're trapped in a pattern of sin today. And know that if God has truly made you His child, you will never not be His child. Our statement of faith in our Constitution and bylaws summarizes the truth this way. All true believers endure to the end. Those whom God has accepted in Christ and sanctified or set apart for God, by His Spirit, will never fall away from the state of grace, but shall persevere to the end. It's our, right there in our statement of faith. And it's a summary of biblical doctrine. It's difficult, by the way. There are some people who are like, well, that's not that big a deal. Are you secure in God or are you not secure in God? Can you get saved and then lose your salvation and then get saved and then lose your salvation? Ah, it's not that big a deal. It's a huge deal. Because it's a commentary on who God is and the character of God and the power of God unto those that he saves. What kind of father makes you his child and then says you're not my child and then makes you his child and then says you're not my child? Who do we think God is? It's difficult to overstate the importance of the doctrine of the eternal security of the believer in Christ. Without this doctrine, Christians are not motivated to serve God out of love for his grace. Rather, they are motivated because they could lose their salvation tomorrow. They're motivated not out of love, but rather out of fear of losing something. Or out of pride over their ability to keep something. But church, we've been saved by grace. And grace is a gift that is God's to give and which He never takes away. Grace leads to overwhelming gratitude and love. Not to fear, not to pride, and not to legalism. Here's the fundamental question that we must answer on this doctrine. Who saved you? If you saved you, then you can lose your salvation. But if God saved you, you can't. And if you saved you, then Jude's doxology should not be addressed to God. It should be addressed to you. Now to you who is able to save yourself and keep yourself from stumbling, be glory and honor and power and authority. But you don't have the authority to save yourself. You don't have the power to save yourself. You are powerless. Ephesians 2 says you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God saved me. Aiken explains it this way, the doctrine of the eternal security of the believer is absolutely necessary to a correct understanding of the gospel. If you can lose eternal life, it isn't eternal anyway. By definition, it's not eternal. If I can lose it, it's not everlasting. It's punctuated. Well, I had it, then I lost it, then I had it. That's not everlasting. If I can work my way out of my salvation, my salvation is ultimately dependent upon me and not God. It's not God's salvation, it's my salvation. If I can lose it, my confidence, my comfort and hope are pulled out from beneath me and I'm suspended in uncertainty as to my final destiny. And God is not a God who saves to uncertainty. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand John 10:27 and 28 Ephesians 1:14 says you were sealed in him with the holy spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance The evidence that we need, church, to be assured that we belong to Christ is not that we prayed a prayer when we were seven. It's not that we had an experience. It's not that we got baptized or signed a card or walked an aisle. The assurance that we need this morning, church, is that we hear His voice. It's that we have the witness and the seal of the Holy Spirit on our lives who is producing within us a desire to live with the brethren in a local church family. That we have God producing within us the fruit of repentance and humility and generosity and selflessness and love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness to God and to others and self-control and gratitude and love for God who saved us to the uttermost. God will never give away what He has claimed for His own at the cost of his son. Some of you can't lose a dollar without chasing it down and finding it. Now let me ask you something. If you sent your one and only son on a rescue mission for somebody to save them and then you save them, are you just going to give them back? God spent the blood of His own son to redeem you. He's not going to redeem you and then give you away? It is Jesus, not us, who is the author and the finisher of our faith, Hebrews 12, 2. And on the day that God finishes his glorious and transforming work of saving us, look at verse 24, look at what he will do. Not only will he not let you fall into apostasy, you say, well, I've known people who have fallen into apostasy. Then what the Bible would say is they never actually believed. It's not that they lost their salvation, they were never actually saved. And so not only will He keep you until the end, look at what He will do when you get there. He will cause you to stand in the presence of His glory. God will keep His promise. You will see God. The God who keeps us from stumbling out of His salvation will also cause us to stand literally before the face of His glory. Psalm 67 is a prayer that we would be blessed to know the face of God. Where do we behold the face of God? We behold it in Christ the Son. We will see His glory, church. We will not be consumed or ashamed. How in the world is this possible? You remember Moses? He wants to see the glory of God. And God is like, well, I'll show you the backside of my glory after I hide you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand. But here, Jude tells us we will see the face of His glory. What in the world is going on here? On the day of Christ's return, Jesus tells us nothing is hidden that will not become evident. Nor anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Every secret sin, everything we've ever said, done, or thought that would please God or displease God will be known. When I was in the first grade, do y'all remember sign and return papers? Do you still do that, Paul? Sign and return. Do y'all remember sign and return? Like whatever you did for the week or the last couple of weeks, they would put all your papers together, they would staple them, they'd put a little form on the top, and they would ask your parents to sign that they had seen your work, and, that, and then you had to return it to your teacher. Well, when I was in the first grade, I was a pretty smart guy. And I had a lot of A's in that stack, but I had one F, because she wanted me to stop working on that and work on something else, and that's not the way I work. Like, I finish a task before I go to the next task, don't mess with me. Well, she messed with me, and I didn't finish that paper, and I got an F on that paper, and everything else was stellar. And my parents, I knew they weren't going to like Fs very much, and they weren't going to accept my explanation, and so I found my dad's staple puller, (laughs) pulled that staple right out, slid that F right out of the middle of the stack. Nailed that stapler right back down through those same holes. It was perfect execution. Hid that F under my dresser, and then it was summertime. Been out of school for a couple weeks, and my mom decides to deep clean my room. She comes down the hallway Hey, son, what's this? There's coming a day where we will stand before God. And we will either delight in His glory, or we will be consumed eternally by it. For those who don't belong to Christ, it's terrifying that we would see God's face. The standard for standing before God is the perfectly pure perfection of God. Matthew 5.48 says, You are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. How perfect is God? 1 John 1.5 one five says God is light and there's no darkness in Him at all. Psalm 92.15 says the Lord is upright. He is my rock. There is no unrighteousness in Him. In other words, good people and nice guys don't get to go to heaven. Only people who have been rescued by the blood of Christ. And praise God, if we do belong to Christ... Who is the radiance of the glory of God. Hebrews 1.3 We will be able to stand because God himself is the one who will cause us to stand. He is the one who will have cast our sins as far as east is from west. For those who are truly in Christ, God has credited to your account the perfections of Jesus forever. You will not stand there in your own deeds, in your own works. You will stand there in the finished work of Christ. This is why Paul writes, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He writes further, we are justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. And because we are once for all justified, that is declared righteous through the death and resurrection of Jesus, we have a once for all peace with God. It's a gift that is God's to give. That he never takes away. We will stand when Christ returns. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. Titus 3.5 But because God has declared we are. Do you see the word in Jude 24? Blameless. In Christ. Who bore our sin and paid its penalty. The word blameless in Jude 24. Literally means without blemish. Faultless. As we stand Perfect in the eyes of our Savior. When your relative gets Alzheimer's and they're saying crazy stuff, but they spend a lifetime walking with Jesus, God in Christ will cause them to stand blameless. When the world falsely accuses you, God who saved you will still cause you to stand before Him. Blameless. When you have a past that haunts you, in Christ, God will cause you to stand before the face of His glory, blameless. When your boss overlooks you, when you don't get that promotion, whatever it is you're living for today that disappoints you, when you get to the finish line and receive the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12, God Himself will cause you to stand before Him blameless. And you will be blameless, without blemish, not because of what you did, but because you were purchased, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb who was what? blameless without blemish or spot and when you stand before him blameless notice what you will have you will have great joy great joy great joy pictures a festival in the presence of god a sea of people singing praising and dancing they may not be baptists but dancing in joyous celebration Christ will shine upon us, church, like a bridegroom ready to take his bride. Why do we like weddings so much? The the groom is beaming and the bride is ready. We like them because they show us in micro this small picture of what it's going to be like the day that Christ returns and we are there and we say, let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. We can contend for the faith because God keeps his children to the end. Everlasting life is everlasting because it's been given by the everlasting God. We will surely stand because Christ has already stood in our place. But if it's God who saves us and it's God who keeps us, why do so many people wrestle with the assurance of salvation? Some don't understand that it's God who saved them. They're still trying to be good enough. They're trying to be saved by what they do rather than what Christ has done. They're still trying to be saved out of a position of fear or pride rather than love for God. Some are stuck in a pattern of sin and quite frankly, they're genuinely lost. There's no repentance in their life. There's no remorse over their sin. There's no fighting against sin. And ultimately, there's really no faith in God. It's just a routine, a checklist. It's a bunch of legalism. But then there are some, and I think this might be some in this room this morning, who, quite frankly, you've just forgotten how big God is. Maybe you've just allowed yourself to fall in a posture or a disposition of doubting the ability of God to keep His promise. And that's what Jude writes about in verse 25. He says, do you doubt me? Do you doubt that God will keep you from stumbling? Do you doubt that God will cause you to stand on the day of His return? Because if you do, let me remind you who God is. Which his second point is this, we must know who God is and praise Him for graciously, gloriously, powerfully, and decisively saving and keeping us. Jude concludes his praise to God, do you see it? Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Did you know you've been saved through Jesus to give glory to God through Jesus His whole prayer of praise comes through Jesus Christ. There's no other way to give praise to God. If you are not in Christ Jesus, then you do not yet know how to praise God. You are not yet qualified to praise God. We were made to know and enjoy God and glorify God forever. And the only way that you can give to God the glory that He is due is through Jesus Christ. His prayer, by the way, is not so much that... That God would have glory and majesty and dominion and authority. He already has those things. It's more of a declaration that we are praising God because He does have those things. We have this great privilege of praising and delighting in God through Jesus Christ. Notice why we praise Him. First, He is the only God. Do you see that in verse 25? He is the only God. Any other gods, we're working in our Bible reading program through the book of Jeremiah, and he's he's talking to Israel about their sin of idolatry, and that they they carve things, and they make things, and they're useless, and they're pointless. Now today, I don't, I don't think any of you are going to go home and make an idol, but we all wrestle with idols, do we not? The The gods of career advancement, and sexual fulfillment, and just a shopping spree, or a mental escape, all of these gods ultimately fail to deliver the salvation that they promise. There's only one God. The only. And all of humanity is accountable to this God. And if this God, the only God, doesn't save, guess what? There is no salvation. There's no hope. But praise God, Jude doesn't just say now to him, the only God. He says the only God... Our Savior. He's not just the only God. He's our Savior. God is a saving God. As Achan writes, the Father saves us, the Son secures us, and the Spirit seals us. Or we might say the Father calls and the Spirit draws and the Son redeems. Or the Father adopts, the Spirit transforms, and the Son surrenders, trusts, and obeys so that you might be saved. The Father father who adopts us does not abandon us. The Father does not love us in order to lose us. The idea that anyone or anything can undo what God has done requires an incredibly small view of God and His power, does it not? If the God who saved you is a God who can't keep you or a God who would let you go, then it's not God who saved you. It's almost like Judas saying, are you afraid to contend? Are you afraid to fight for the faith? Let me remind you who saved you. It is God who saved you. The only one, our Savior. God saves His people. He keeps them from stumbling. Why? Because He's God. He's God. Who's God? He's the God of glory and majesty and dominion or strength and authority. Jude gives us a fourfold affirmation of the greatness of God. First, the word glory. The word glory means heaviness or weightiness. When applied to a person, it refers to his fame or his reputation. When we say that someone carries a lot of weight, We don't mean that they need to go to the gym. Right? We're saying they have a type of glory. God has a glory that's above all other glories. It's a glory that's unrivaled. It is not a glory that He must earn or that He must maintain. It's simply a glory that He has. He is and has glory. James Merritt said it this way. Glory is as essential to God as light is to the sun, as blue is to the sky, as wet is to water. You don't make the sun light, it's light. You don't make the sky blue, it's blue. You don't make water wet, it's wet. Likewise, you don't make God glorious, God is glorious. And yet we're commanded throughout the scriptures to ascribe glory to God, to give glory to God. In other words, we are to recognize that God is glorious. And the way that we recognize it is in His saving power in making us who were dead in our trespasses and sins children of the living God. We recognize His glory through Jesus Christ. There is nothing more glorious than God, and nothing in the universe, therefore, can ever undo His glorious salvation. Secondly, Jude tells us that God is a God of majesty. Majesty refers to the exalted position of God. God says, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts, Isaiah 55, nine. Early Christians took this word majesty, and they refused to use it in association with anyone or anything other than God. Now, Roman citizens around them would say that Caesar had majesty Or that Rome had majesty. Or that other governmental authorities had majesty. But they would not put any government, any politician, any ruler anywhere close to being anywhere near the majesty of God. They would only use the word for God. Let me ask you, do you have some words that you'll only use for God? Do you have some spaces in your life that belong to God and God alone? Ought not the church of the living God be one of those places? God alone is majestic. God alone is to be worshiped because he alone is over all things. The true church of God will endure in the United States of America in all contexts and in all generations, not because we're Americans. Not even because we have the First Amendment of the Constitution of the United States. The reason that Christianity and the true church of God will persist in this nation is the reason it persists in every other nation. It is because God is majestic and He is over all Those who are saved by God are secure in their salvation because no country, no congresswoman, no military, no executioner, no dictator, no imposter, no invader can ever undo what God the Majestic One has done. The theologians speak of God's majesty by saying that He is transcendent. G.R. Lewis describes God's transcendence in this way. God is uniquely other than everything else in His creation. He's distinct from the world. His being is eternal. The world's is temporal. God's knowledge is total. Human knowledge is incomplete. God's character is holy. Humanity's character is fallen and sinful. God's desires are consistently against evil. Human desires fluctuate inconsistently, often intermingling evil with good. God's energy is untiring and inexhaustible. The world's energy is subject to depletion through entropy. Hence, God is infinitely over and above persons in the world in all these respects. What does this mean? It means that salvation is not becoming God, but rather being in right relationship with God who alone is and always will be God. He will always be majestic and over all that is. The majesty of God, by the way, means that Christians can enjoy nature, but they ought not worship nature. It means that your bike ride in the woods and your hike in the woods, as good and fulfilling as it is, is never a replacement for communion with the Holy Church of God. Because God is separate from the world, Christians cannot bow to any earthly power as God. Because God is entirely separate from the world, nothing in this world can undo His saving work. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name. And Your name alone in all the earth. Then Jude praises God for His dominion. The word means strength. God has infinite power and strength. Peter says we are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time because God is and has a strength that is greater than all other powers combined. Those who are truly saved and kept by God's power can never be lost. Jude concludes by praising God for His authority. God's authority is what Moo calls, Doug Moo Cause his intrinsic right to rule all things. You know, police officers wear badges. And those badges indicate where they have jurisdiction or authority to make an arrest. Now I talked to Andrea and Morris because I wanted to make sure my illustration was accurate. Apparently there's reciprocity between like Roanoke County and Salem and Roanoke City, and they can sort of make arrests in, in this region. I said, Well, what about Virginia Beach? And she said, Well, only if it's a felony. And I said, Well, what about North Carolina? And she said, nope, can't make arrest for anything in North Carolina. I said, okay, good, my illustration works. Here's the point. Police officers have an authority with a range. But God is authority. If God had a badge, then His badge would say, everywhere and always. There's no glory that's greater than God's glory. There's no strength that's greater than God's strength. There's no majesty that's greater than God's majesty. And all authority that exists flows out of the one who is authority. He is over all times. He is over all places. Which means there's no power that can undo the power of God that saved you. There's no strength that can undo the strength of God that saves you. And there's no place and there's no person and there's no time. There's no authority in the world that can undo the salvation that God gives to His children. There's not a place that exists where God cannot say of you, if you are His through faith in Christ Jesus, He is mine, she is mine. God has the authority to keep you now and forever and for always, and nobody can say anything else about it. He is the authority. And then Jude says, just in case you were wondering if that was true He has saved you in Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And notice what he says. This is true of God when? Before all ages, before there ever was time, before anything existed, God was glory and majesty and dominion and authority. And it's true of God right now. He still has that. And if your faith and hope is in Christ, you stand in God and nobody can take you out of His hand. And finally, it is going to be forever. These things of, that define who God is can never not define who God is. And if you're in Christ Jesus, you can never not be His, period. And then Jude says simply, Amen. Amen is an invitation for the church of God to participate in this doxology By lifting their voices in agreement with it. And I've got to know this morning. Can you agree? Do you know that you know that you know that your life is built. On the unshakable foundation of Christ the Lord. If you know that then I want to invite you to stand. After we pray and sing. In such a way that we lift this roof off this place. Because it is God who saved you. But if you don't know that you stand and that you will stand blameless before Christ on the day of His return. Then let today be the day that you settle that once and for all. And come and surrender your life and stop living for the pleasure of sin. And start living for the glory of Christ who died to save you. Let today be that day. Would you pray with me? God, draw the ones you need to draw and renew the joy of our salvation in those who truly stand in Christ today. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.